This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Jane Roper's satirical romp through cancel culture, The Society of Shame, Kathleen Held, wife of a prominent Democratic Senate candidate, is having a rather quotidian day when she returns to her house to find her husband crawling in the yard with pants down, just having extricated himself from a young female staffer with underwear around her ankle, with the backdrop of Kathleen's garage actively on fire. The scene might have otherwise been a hilarious version of the cliched politician in Delectio Flagrante with a woman not his wife, had it not been for the picture snapped of the scene capturing a rather large period stain on Kathleen's pants. Her public humiliation soon transforms into a social movement under the hashtag YesWeBleed. While at first entirely uninterested in a menstruation endorsement movement, Kathleen finds herself unwittingly a member of the Society of Shame, a group of the cancelled who gather in the home of the mysterious and vulgarly image-oriented Danica Bellevue, who has plans for Kathleen's return to public life. While Kathleen falls under the sway of Danica's image remake, which comes with a six-figure book deal and constant interviews about her role as the putative leader of the Yes, We Bleed movement, her daughter, Aggie, is doing the hard work to create a grassroots movement with an authentic interest in global women's health. Kathleen's brief moment of internet stardom is dulled by the inevitable need for shame culture to tear her down and by her own blindness to the costs of fame. 
Told in hilarious chapters that mark the days since the incident in Kathleen's front yard, the Society of Shame comes with a razor-sharp blade for the pieties of a society that is at once obsessed with public visibility while being subject to the doctrinaire whims of the great anonymous monster of internet fame. A satire that seems ripped from the headlines, Jane Roper's novel spares no one and asks us to consider what a society of eternal judgments on all behavior has wrought. Jane Roper is the author of two previous books, a memoir, Double Time, and a novel, Eden Lake. Her short fiction, essays, and humor have appeared in publications including McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Millions, The Rumpus, Salon, and Poets and Writers, and on NPR. Jane is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and lives in the Boston area with her husband and two children. Welcome to the show, Jane Roper. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. And I that synopsis of the book was fantastic. I want to get a copy of that. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank you so much. And I want to start with that opening scene because it's such a hilarious multi-part disaster that unfolds over the course of a, a chapter. The combination of chaos elements, husband with pants down, garage on fire, Uber driver rescuing dog, and, <laughs> and epic period stain, and the slow-mo like unfurling of the drama make for an unforgettable start to the novel. Was this scene always the catalyst for the rest of the narrative? Did you know Kathleen's shame origin story from the start? Um, well, so yes and no. I I knew that I wanted to write a book about someone uh, becoming catapulted to internet fame for whom this would be the ultimate nightmare. So <clears throat> I started with the idea of being, you know, having the humiliation of being cheated on by your spouse um, happen in a very public and, uh, you know, <laughs> crazy, chaotic way, as you say. Um, so I had that in mind, but then I knew, well, there has to be something else to double down on it and, and make it even worse. And that's where the idea of the period stain on her pants came from. And I knew that was the right way to go because instantly I, I recognized, oh, that could turn into a movement. That could turn into something mm -hmm. that would go from embarrassment to heroism and make her plight infinitely, for her, infinitely worse and more humiliating. But I, and then I just, oh gosh, I just kind of just kept doubling down. I'm like, how can I make this even crazier? And, you know, having this taxi driver rescue the dog and neighbors looking on. And it was once I sort of gave my permission, myself permission to kind of go over the top with that <laughs> first scene um, <laughs> from there. Yeah, it was kind of off to the races. I think maybe it was Steve Martin who said, like, you know, once you go, if you start by going way far out into the absurd, it gives you permission to do anything up until that point, you know, so mm. that from there you can turn the volume down on the absurdity, but then ramp it right back up. <laughs> well, you, you feel how much you enjoy the ramping up throughout the book. Yeah. Because at various moments, you're just, you turn the dial to 11. The fact that it ended up sort of landing in a kind of um, menstruation awareness, uh, heroism for Kathleen is, is interesting on the one hand, because it's still such a 
such an issue for our society and and even down to like the the difficulty for people who menstruate to to get the things they need if they're poor or have little access to to shopping areas and things like that yeah I, and yet at the same time there there appears not to have been such a movement like this in the US did, the, did you come upon anything that sort of resembled it in your in your research yeah, I mean, there isn't the sort of mass movement that the hashtag Yes, We Bleed movement becomes in the book, but there are lots of initiatives on smaller scales uh, to make period products more available, to remove stigma. Um, a few years ago, there was um, the winner, the Oscar winner for Best Short Documentary was called Period End of Sentence, and that was about... oh. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, an, an initiative in India to make affordable menstrual supplies available. And actually, they have women making them, like creating them as a business. Um, mm. Because in so many parts of the world, you, you, girls or women won't go to school during their period because and it, because they don't have access to the supplies or because there's a real social stigma, a real taboo around it. So it is happening. You know, the, the movement is happening. And it's just happening in a fragmented manner, but it's it's great. That's fascinating. Yeah. The Society of Shame itself, which Kathleen, soon to be renamed Cat, joins accidentally when she takes her husband's invitation, is made up of a gallery of canceled robes. The collected group, all publicly shamed and trying to recover their lives, are each in a way a parody of a recognizable character from our modern lives. Toxic mom, inappropriate porn viewing uh, husband, me too, groper, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It is ostensibly a support group for the canceled. What interests you about cancel culture, if that's a term you would use? And how does the novel wind itself into the intersection of shame and activism? Sure. So, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that term cancel culture because I, I think it gets thrown around a bit indiscriminately. <laughs> so oh, Absolutely. You know, yeah, you know, any any time someone is called to be accountable, all of a sudden they're being canceled. But what what does interest me about it is the or interest or trouble me about it, I guess, is the is the lack of nuance and how hmm. um, so much of the time uh, snap judgments are made or people are instantly taking sides. Yes, no, good, bad. You know, this person is the worst person on earth. No, this person didn't do anything. And there's, because things move so quickly online, there isn't a whole lot of room for actual healthy, um, conversation or healthy shame because shame is an important force, uh, for mm -hmm. correcting, um, you know, when people break norms or break social expectations, Shame can be a useful way to bring them back into the fold. But if it's actually being used to bring them back into the fold, as opposed to, you know, relegating them to, you know, if there's no room for redemption. Now, I think in some cases there shouldn't be room for redemption, right? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. I, I want Bill Cosby to <laughs> rot in jail. But yeah. there are some cases where, and, and this is the case with some of the folks in the society, in the book, maybe there is room for redemption. But the question is, do do folks who are quote canceled unquote do they change do they reform or do they dig in do they hide um how is their treatment by the the masses does that contribute to 
to meaningful change or not. Um, so I just, there's just, just so much to dig into, I, I felt. And I wanted to explore, like you said, different angles and aspects of that. And in creating the members of the society, they kind of are on a spectrum, right? You have some stuff mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is a little more innocent and then some stuff that is more egregious and then some stuff in the middle that is, you know, so for example, there's the woman who gets dubbed by Danica Rancher Mama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who freaks out at her kid in the supermarket. Oh, no, that that's Angry Cereal Mom. Well, but, that's Angry Cereal. Yeah, Angry Cereal But um, she's, she's the one who becomes a gift. But Rancher Mama is a woman who, you know, lives on a ranch. I forget if it's Idaho or Colorado or something. And posts a picture online of herself and her son with oh, their with their guns with their guns having just killed some wolves mm-hmm. on their property, which of course you know sets off a stream of of judgment from angry liberals mostly. But as from her point of view, well, well, it is legal to hunt wolves, and we have a cattle ranch, and wolves are like taking down our cattle. So this is us protecting mm-hmm. our living. So it's you know stuff like that that's com- complex, um, and so I wanted to to dig around in that. Yeah, very much complex. And I you you mentioned the sort of speed at which this sort of doom cycle of the internet when when kind of shame is in the mix, and yeah. you um, sum up that the speed of that in this one glorious paragraph about a Wendy's incident in which they sort of wade uh, unintentionally into politics. Would you read that paragraph for us? Sure. Yeah. So um, this is about Bill Held, who's Kathleen's husband, who is running for Senate in New York. And he's he's running the U.S. Senate and he's running against a former um, like heavy metal front front man named Kurt Cryer, who's sort of this ridiculous over the top conservative guy. And because he's this heavy metal, you know, he's a celebrity. Uh, everything's in the news. So now anything having to do with either Bill or Cryer was national news. Most recently, it was the Wendy's incident. Someone had spotted Bill coming out of a Wendy's with a vanilla Frosty, snapped a selfie with him, and posted it on Twitter, tagging Wendy's, which led to an adorable witty tweet from Wendy's offering Bill a lifetime supply of free Frosties. This led to calls for a boycott of Wendy's by Republicans, which resulted predictably in endless selfies of Democrats holding Frosties. <laughs> this was promptly followed by a backlash from some environmentalists who criticized Bill and his hypocritical faux liberal supporters' use of plastic straws and cup lids, at which point Wendy started running a 30-second online commercial touting their plan to transition to 100% recyclable and compostable packaging by 2040. This did not satisfy the environmentalists in the least, but by then nobody was paying attention anymore because there'd been a mass shooting at a high school in Illinois. That's amazing. Um, and and also devastating uh, that, that, you know, the prevalence of mass shootings yeah. is the thing that will inevitably turn our eye for at least a second to half a day half away day, yeah. from that just insanity that you lay out in in kind of corporate responses, missteps, um, returns. Uh, when you were thinking about that, you know, how um, did the sort of speed of the Internet factor into how you wanted to kind of represent that? Yeah, I mean, it, it is astonishing, like you say, that the, the way things can turn on a dime and and one thing sparks another thing and it's this breathless pace. And I think it's it's abetted by the 24-hour news cycle. 
And it also, you know, the reason that Kathleen, that the book takes place in, in a matter of weeks is just because, you know, people rise and fall as, as celebrities or not, or, you know, little movements will rise and fall quickly. Honestly, it, it felt like a stretch to me. I had this funny kind of these two opposing forces in the book where I had to stretch out Kathleen's, you know, 15 minutes of, of fame or notoriety and have things keep happening to sustain it for more than just mm -hmm. a week, mm -hmm. say, right? So things keep happening to stretch it out to a month, which is, you know, a huge amount of time. And, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in today's fame cycle, how quickly we, you know, forget scandals. And at the same time, I had to have her undergo some, you know, change as a character, which is an exaggerated or, or a compressed timeline, right, for her mm -hmm. to come to so to sort of lose her way and find it again. So the society of shame is the best kind of satire in that its exaggerations feel tightly knit to the realities of our society, our culture, and our politics. How did you go about crafting a satirized America that still rings remarkably true? And are there certain elements that you felt like you ironized more than others? Sure, yeah. I mean, what's, what is funny about doing satire about our contemporary culture is so much, and people say this, like so much just feels like satire of itself or like parody of itself. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to go to exaggerate too much to, to get to that satirical point. Although it, it is funny, you know, from some reactions of the book, people say, well, this seems unrealistic. This wouldn't happen. You know, I'm like, well, it is satire, you know, <laughs> that's sort of, <laughs> sort of the point of, uh, but yeah, it, it it does try to try to walk that line. Um, one thing I really enjoyed poking. Well, there are two things I really enjoyed ironizing and and poking at a little bit and giving a little edge to. And the first thing is is infighting among groups that are really on the same side. So I I do poke a lot of fun at liberal infighting um, mm -hmm. in particular. Yeah, beautifully <laughs> done. You know, the circular firing squad and and as someone who I just get. That's something I personally get so frustrated with. Um, but and then the other thing was, well, I think the activism aspect of things, which you asked about before. So the Yes, We Bleed movement and the sort of splinter movements and anti movements that happen are all happening online and for the most part. And some people are very earnestly committed and involved. And one of those, of course, is Aggie, Kathleen's daughter, although she's doing it, like you said, in a grassroots matter, manner, not really online. But the way that online activism can become slacktivism, right? People think, oh, I'm I'm retweeting something. I'm an activist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or I'm putting this this thing on my avatar. I'm an activist. And that's fine. You know, those things can be very helpful, sure. And, you know, when I think about Me Too in particular, the power of the internet in mm -hmm. giving voice to people and and yeah. keeping that mo movement going is amazing. But then there are other things where it gets kind of silly, um, and it's like the the memes and the hashtags become uh, a stand-in for actual substance or actual action and commitment. So I had fun playing with that um, with some of the 
this, you know, people are dressing up as tampons and then. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the period cup hats that eventually get the ears from the original 2016 hat. And it's like, you know, half cat, half period cup. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Playing on her name, cat. And yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Just taking um, the play that you're doing with with satire comes in many discourses, which I love. And I love when novels sort of break, break the fourth wall of discourse and stop being a certain kind of prose narrative and bring in all these other things. And you're working with, you know, Twitter um, tweets, political debates, TV interviews, and even a museum object label, which I loved. <laughs> How did you decide to bring in all these paranarrative forms and did you have a favorite to write yeah those were those were fun creating those little interstitials of different media i i felt they played an important that the narrative role of them is to show what's happening in the wider world to show the reach and the influence and all the buzz and conversation that's happening around Kathleen's fame and around the the movement that um, just make more sense to stand on their own as these little bits of parody rather than having them filtered through Kathleen's eyes. Um, so I just wanted to create the the sense of like the global reach and the way this is mm -hmm. happening on such a huge scale. That museum description was definitely a lot of fun to write. That I think that was one of my favorites, and I was inspired by. I was doing a little self-directed writing retreat out in Western Mass. And I went to Mass Mocha, the um, contemporary oh, art yeah, museum. Yeah. yeah. And I was just, I've always been struck by the, there's this very particular language of museum piece descriptions. Mm -hmm. um, so I had fun parodying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you got it just right. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> uh, Kathleen's downfall, or at least part of her downfall, comes in the form of a pair of swans upon whose habitat Kathleen lives after moving out of her house. Yes. But, but that's just the heaviest blow of the shame industry in the novel. Kathleen, and for that matter, no person can be good enough or doctrinaire enough in the many overlapping liberal dogmas that you lay out. Do we limit the possibility of social movements in the era of doctrinaire politics? I think we run that risk. I, I, I guess I feel like some of that, the purity tests can um, and, and little mini shamings can undermine the, the larger cause. Right. I think um, it, different people are on different points of their journeys, let's just say. So if, you know, if we're putting people down for wanting to be part of a cause, but not quite being, but, but still learning as they go, we're missing out on having potential allies and causes, right? If people are too afraid to, to try because they're doing it wrong, then, you know, the, you lose, you know, lose potential force for the movement. So and I think it happens, you know, I'm more tuned in and maybe you and I are more tuned in to the ways it happens on the, the liberal side of things. But I imagine it happens on the conservative side of things, too. And I tried to put in a couple examples there of that. Mm -hmm. Like there is a woman who is a, you know, evangelical Christian craft maker. She she does crafts and, and she has like a whole 
you know, I don't know what the what that realm is, but yeah, she has a crafts. She's a crafts influencer, and she gets torn down because um, she puts her pronouns on her um, mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> on her profile, you know, in solidarity. So in that case, it's like, well, you can't be you can't be a Christian and be and be and a conservative, and if you're going to be putting your pronouns on things, I tried to do it on both sides, but yeah, like like I said, I think maybe that is that kind of purity testing is a little more prevalent on the left. Yeah, well, I think you do, you do a good job in showing how like there's a certain kind of conservative or or right wing troll who will often, you know, show up in these internet conversations and sometimes turn the conversation to violence. Yeah. Whereas there are these liberal voices that seem to be like jumping on top of each other to denounce some aspect of the lack of intersection in in a right. particular movement. The woke Olympics. I had a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is such a great description yeah. for it. And the one seems perilous and the other seems dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, like very, very scary and dangerous. And yeah. that seems to have been given a a, a kind of uh, a publicity and a, and a public facing uh shape by the Trump presidency. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, it's clear that you are trying to sort of handle these things in, in, you know, both having their kind of extreme problems. Right. And, and I, I don't think they're, you know, to be, you know, absolutely clear, I don't think there's a moral equivalence there. <laughs> no, no, I no, I didn't. I didn't think you did. Yeah, no, I know. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I, I hopefully, you know, I think I, there's hypocrisy to go around and I, uh, um, you know, but I do think that, well, yes, uh, hopefully I <laughs> made it clear that, like you said, one is one is perilous and, and counterproductive. One is, yes, downright dangerous. Uh, Kathleen's daughter, Aggie, represents, as you've said, a different kind of activism from Cat and the Society of Shame. Hers is a distinctly grassroots activism. And I think it's really important that she is uh, at one point, uh, Kathleen says, oh, you don't have you're mad because you don't have social media. And I think it's really important that she doesn't while yeah. she's building this grassroots version of Yes, We Bleed. And it builds support not via that social media platform, but through on the ground action and coalition building. Yeah. And I wonder if Aggie's form is possible without social uh, with social media being so prevalent in all kinds of activism now can we do we have to have the heart and limited technology of the of a child to be mm-hmm. able to have that kind of true grassroots that's a great question and i you know when i think about the the substance like i'm tuned into the moms demand action mm-hmm. gun anti-gun violence movement i know they you know their stuff is very grassroots they are showing up at town meetings they are showing up in state houses they are their you know their bodies are there they're not just tweeting and they're not just mm-hmm. um they do that also but I, you know for things to be really powerful i think there there has to be more of an emphasis on people you know, putting their bodies on the line and they're putting their their time and their words and their energy in ways that you just can't do from behind the keyboard exclusively. Um, but on, on the other hand, I think, you know, I think for building awareness, um, 
the internet is that, you know, there's no comparison to anything else. I think it's, it's more about, it's not a great place for discourse to happen, I suppose, because <laughs> mm. it gets dragged down so quickly. That's, I think that's a really important point that the kind of discourse that that social media, you know, especially Twitter, which is where a lot of this like political activism happens <laughs> that can happen is is limited, like purposefully limited in the number of characters. But then right. also you are really trying to have sort of one tweet catch fire. So it has to be a certain kind of pointed, very like blown up yeah. level of discourse. Yeah, right. They're like again, you know, it comes back to the the lack of nuance and so many of these issues are are so complex that yeah, a tweet can't can't capture it all and even when you take it to more you know, longer form things, I mean on on Facebook when when people start I I've never seen a a productive political discussion or on on Facebook. I I mean maybe that's not true. Maybe you know, maybe amongst friends there can be there can be some meaningful conversation, but um, because it's public and because it's there's that lack of uh, you know tone and different people have differing abilities to express themselves verbally, it can it can really become a mess. But you know, hey, movements are messy regardless. I mean, I I recently rewatched the Life of Brian, the Monty Python. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's great, and you have these like two factions of of the followers of Brian, like getting into an argument at one point about their different like interpretations of his message. And it's hilarious. You know, it's, it's the same thing, right? It's absolutely. I, I didn't think our conversation was going to include the life of Brian, but I'm really glad. I'm really glad it does. <laughs> and I'm also glad that you referenced Moms Demand Action because it's I, I think it is a great example of a grassroots organization that is having momentum and power and yeah. and not needing to just be a series of hashtags. Right. And, you know, and of course, with with Aggie's grassroots version of Yes, We Bleed in in the in the book, um, it's I certainly kept it off of social media for to create that contrast, right? And to show her her earnestness and to show the the way that um her version of things is not getting corrupted. Although then it does sort of get corrupted. There um you have the sort of hangers on and the folks who are one of her friends who is becomes more interested in creating merchandise than you know, really yeah yeah <laughs> so you know even even the the purest of intentions we're you know, human beings being humans we we get off track and kind of sort of fun to play with that that's so true one of the great contradictions of our american moment is that we are at once a culture of shaming and a seemingly shameless people mm. you you look hard at social media as one of the main drivers of this constant shaming for things large and small but somehow that goes hand in hand with an astonishing lack of shame for both major political figures and everyday people george san Santos appears to be incapable of shame. Yeah. And he is matched by everyday people who parade through the streets with AR-15s after little children are blown to pieces yeah. in gun massacres. Did you think about this contradiction when you were writing The Society of Shame? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and it is it, it is fascinating how we, we can be so quick to judge. And I think we're so... This at this moment, the sides, the teams are so entrenched that 
they sort of are willing to overlook shameless behavior because they feel they have to. They feel like it's a matter of survival. Like we're we're going to look away because that's how we win. You know, and and going back to that thing that Trump said, well, you know, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and and you know, people would still support me. I think that's it, absolutely true. And yeah. it's because people feel this life or death need to cling to their team. And if their team is going to act shamelessly, um, well, so be it. We're willing to look away. And, and um, you know, and I, again, I think it happens more on one, in one, on one team than another team. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it is astonishing. I mean, it really, again, it, it, it it's where satire and reality are just, man, there's a fine line there. Very fine. I mean, if you had invented George Santos for this novel, I would have said that's a little over the top. Yeah, right. Right. I know it's well. And and there are, you know, I have a character who is, um, a, you know, a pro, you know, an anti-choice, anti-abortion politician who is oh, yeah, funding pays for the <laughs> for abortions and. And I wrote that long before it came out that Herschel Walker, this Georgia Senate candidate, was was doing just that. So, yeah, it is. Um, it, it yeah, it was hard to hard to stay ahead. Hard to I don't know if I can write satire again. I think things just keep getting so much even more absurd. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, a horrifying thought that right. satire might not be able to exist. Yeah. in a society of constant self parody. Right. But. Right. Yep. Um, as brisable as Danica is, her menu of responses that she hands out to the Society of Shame is ironically a possibly healthy set of reactions to being publicly shamed for bad beha- behavior. The list, all starting with R for whatever reason, includes redeem, repair, reconnect, restart, and what ends up being the choice for Kathleen, reap. Yeah. It is clear you want to satirize the idea of easy self-help in these situations. But did you also invest this menu with some ideas for how a society actually deals with a return after shame? Yeah, definitely. Um, and and yes, you're right. So Danica sort of figured, oh, I can make this catchy and fun. And and yes, here's a here's an easy technique for, you know, she has her little methodology. Um, when in reality, you know, <laughs> changing and redeeming yourself is, is far more complicated. But yeah, you know, I think some of those some of those options of reform or like repent is in there. Mm-hmm. These are, are are matters of self, you know, self examination of growth of taking the time to look inward, which I imagine. Well, I, I know for a fact is is important when you screw up or when you have a life event that throws things into tumult. Um, these are these are reactions that make sense. And, and and so with the members of the society, there's one woman in particular who has fancies herself very liberal and enlightened, but she has also called the police on a black utility worker at her house and but she refuses, there's another re, she refuses <laughs> to do any sort of reflection um, and examine like, oh, do I have some internalized biases do, that I need to look at? You know, she digs in her heels. And I'm guessing that that, that happens sometimes as well when, when folks, well, I certainly know people do that plenty, but maybe even when, when they're shamed online, is that a response, a sort of defensive posture? Um that someone like that might take. So I, I think there there are ways that 
that are healthy and, and things that aren't. And Danica's approach is, is sort of a mix of that because certainly while she's advocating some healthy approaches, she's also, like you said, sort of helping people remake their images, which is, is maybe not the point. And she's so into everything being consumable and commodifiable. Yes. That I think that's where we lose. And that's sort of the problem with like the self-help book industry as well, because it, you know, it's, I think for a while it was the number one selling genre in all of American publishing. And yet it's the way it commodifies. And again, going back to our conversation on discourse, like oversimplifies these yeah. things. So those, all those are menu options are really important and require like such kind of self reconceptualization. And yet the discourse is, is utterly, um, you know, vulgarly simplified. Right. Yes. She's very much about giving people sort of a little hook. And there is, you know, there are a couple members of the group that are doing more of that soul searching. Um, but others are very, um, eager to take up the sort of, uh, yep, here's, here's a quick, uh, snazzy way to package myself. Um, uh, and then others are sort of in between realizing, okay, I'm kind of torn between these, these two extremes. And Rancher Mom is an example of that, right? Danica tries to sort of give her a new name and, you know, suggests a light. She creates this lifestyle blog and, you know, tries to give her a new look, a new makeover. And, and she, Rancher Mom is kind of like, I'm not quite sure this is working for me. Well, before I let you go, I'd love to know what you're loving to read right now. And if you have any recommendations that you might share for my listeners. Sure. So also along the lines of social commentary and um, a little bit of satire, um, but also quite thought provoking is a book called The One by Julia Argy, which imagines it, it just came out uh, a few weeks ago and um, it's a debut novel. And that is about a reality show, like a, a dating reality show called The One. And it gives a behind the scenes look at that. And it's very much about uh, what is love in a, in an age of sort of, you know, in the realm of commodification of, of love, of dating? Um, how much do we package ourselves, not just within the, the context of a reality show, but outside the context as well? And it's, it ha it's, has some sly humor. And I just thought it was, it was really thought provoking and, and fun and a, you know, sort of a, quick, fun read. How ripe for satire is that whole industry? Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. And, and yet it, gosh, there's just sort of a sadness to it too, a sort of melancholy undercurrent, like, ah, oh, wow. Some people actually are looking for love this way. And what does that say about us as a society? What does it say about, or as humans in, in terms of our search for love and our search for meaning? So I thought that was a, that was a good one. Um, another book that I read recently that I, I'm really into thrillers lately. Uh, I don't know what it is, but um, and and thrillers in different forms. And one of those I read was The Push by Ashley Audrain. I think that came out like a year or so ago. And I guess it's not quite a thrill. I guess you call it like a domestic thriller, but it's about a woman, a, a mother who suspects that um, her child, one of her children is a sociopath. And um, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but you can't, you know, it's sort of like, is she paranoid uh, and is she um, sort of projecting her own 
fear that she's an inadequate mother. It's really it just strangely suspenseful um, and I think speaks to some of the ambivalence that a lot of women feel around parenting and about being parent. Anyway, I, that was a really, a really propulsive read. Well, those sound fantastic. I got a galley of the the one which I haven't read yet, but I'm now I'm very excited about it. Yes, but I um, very much want to recommend to my listeners the Society of Shame by Jane Roper, which is hilarious and so painfully on point <laughs> for our moment. You will not regret a moment spent with it. And and thank you so much, Jane, for taking the time to talk with me about the book. Oh, thank you so much. This has been great and, and a really thoughtful questions. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Well, that's all for me for now. My great thanks to Jane Roper for coming on to talk about her poison-penned satire, The Society of Shame. You can find links to purchase that novel and all of Jane's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. It is a thrill to preview my next interview, which will be with the author of The Postcard, Anne Berest, and her translator, Tina Cover. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.